and welcome back to What's With The World. I'm your podcast host, Bella. Today we're going to be talking about the famous Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So I would like to start this episode with a quick interactive activity. So if you're not driving or doing any other activity that requires your hands, um, I'd like to invite you to play a game with me. So put 10 fingers up and each time I say a statement that is applicable to you, put a finger down. So Put a finger down if you are a female. Put a finger down if you're a female who plays a sport or has played a sport. Put a finger down if you're a female who has a credit card. Put a finger down if you're part of the LGBTQ plus community. Put a finger down if you're a racial minority. Put a finger down if you're a widow with a child. Put a finger down if you're a woman who owns property. And finally, put a finger down if you're pro-choice or if you would have an abortion. If you put one or more fingers down, it is more than likely that Ruth Bader Ginsburg has had a direct impact on your life, whether you know it or not. So, today in Season 1, Episode 2 of What's With The World, we're going to be taking a look at Ruth Bader Ginsburg and who she was and how her career as a Supreme Court Justice has impacted us and will continue to impact future generations. So, first we're going to go into her beginning life, so her childhood and the things that led up to her becoming a Supreme Court Justice. She was born in Brooklyn, New York on March 15, 1933. She was the youngest of two children, and her parents were Nathan and Cecilia Bader. They were merchants. Her elder sister was named Marilyn, but she unfortunately died of meningitis at the age of six, when Ruth was only 14 months old. Ruth came from a Jewish family, and she attended the synagogue and participated in Jewish traditions as a child, Um, so she was very religious. She excelled in school, and she is described as being extremely involved in student activities and earning impressive grades. She received her BA from Cornell University, and that is actually the university where she met her husband, Martin, during her first year, and she would later have two children two children with him, one boy and one girl. She then attended Harvard Law School, and she was only one of nine females in a 500-person class, which I can just not even imagine the kind of sexual discrimination that she would have had to put up with there. And just anything that has to do with those sort of things, like to be only one of nine women out of a 500-person class, that is just insane to me. I cannot even imagine. But after that, she received her LLB from Columbia Law School. So she did have a pretty extensive education, and which is very impressive for women in the 60s. You know, it was still not highly recognized or common for women to receive an education you know um it was kind of the culture and what happened in society is women would be housewives and you know stay home with the kids do cooking and cleaning while their husbands were the breadwinners but um Ruth was married at this time but she still chose to receive her education and her husband was very supportive of her um after her um college days and attending university, she served as a law clerk to Judge Edmund L. Palmier. 
of the United States District Court for the Southern District of New York, and she did this from 1959 to 1961. Then after that, around 1963, Ginsburg joined the faculty of Rutgers Law School, which is in Newark, New Jersey. In 1970, Ruth fought for the right of Abby Sheldon, who was a high school student, to play on a boys' tennis team. Because keep in mind, this is the 70s, and it is very uncommon to have a women's or girls' sports team. It was mainly boys, and the girls were not allowed to try out for those teams, and they were not allowed to join them. So this girl named Abby Sheldon had been playing tennis for a few years, and she was a natural. Her mother described her as being very talented at the sport, but she was not even given the right to try out. So Abby's mother reached out to the Civil Liberties Union, um, which is a union that Ginsburg had just started volunteering at. She filed for a lawsuit against the United States Court of Newark. And the evidence that she had for this case is that it violated the Equal Protection Clause. So the state ended up reversing the, their claims and they allowed Abby to try out for the sports team because, you know, by reversing it, they wouldn't have been brought to court, which is what they wanted to avoid. They didn't want to come under that kind of scrutiny and that kind of pressure. So they just reversed their decision and said that Abby could try out for the team. So the case was dropped, but this really is a significant case. And this is why I asked you to put a finger down if you're a female athlete, because this opened a lot of doors for women's sports team, in addition to opening doors for the Equal Protection Clause to back up a lot of feminism and a lot of feminist policies that would come into play in later years. So this case really just was the start of a revolution. So if you're a woman and you have any of these sort of rights, you really have to look to this case as being one of the things that started up this feminist revolution and the equal rights that we have now. In another case in 1971, it was called Reed vs. Reed, and it was a divorced couple fighting for their late son's estate. So their son had passed away, and the mother and father had both applied to take over his land. But, you know, it's the 70s, and there's still a lot of sexist discrimination. So the man, her the, the father, was automatically given the estate without even looking over the applications. And Mrs. Reed didn't just stand down. She didn't back down from her son's estate. She filed for a lawsuit and Ginsburg ended up taking the case on behalf of the mother's legal team. And she argued that their ruling violated the Equal Protection Clause yet again. And because it was sexually discriminatory, which is, you know, pretty obvious if you're not even going to look over their applications, you're just going to automatically give it to the man because of these preconceived notions that society had that men were just automatically more fit to own property and more fit to receive education and all of those sorts of things. So again, the Equal Protection Clause was utilized. Um, and as I said before, this is really opening up a lot of doors for that certain clause to back up a lot of feminist movements and a lot of feminist um, policies and all those sorts of things. So Ginsburg really had a hold on this movement of sexual equality and that is just incredible. And you know, what I find even more interesting is that the wife ended up winning the case on a 7-0 to zero unanimous vote on a panel of all male judges. That was just 
unheard of at the time. Remember, this is the 70s. There is a lot of sexual discrimination. And to have a panel completely made up of males take the side of a woman, that is just insane. So Ginsburg had a very, very strong case and utilized the Equal Protection Clause to her benefit. And the use of the Equal Protection Clause actually prompted um, its use in many other women's rights movements, and it led to the revision of hundreds of state and national laws. So Ginsburg, just by being involved in these two cases involving women's rights and bringing up the Equal Protection Clause, which had never been used before because, you know, apparently nowhere in the Constitution does it say the word women. So it wasn't really used before to back up the feminist movement. But now Ginsburg opened this new door to revise and fix all of these laws that were discriminatory towards females. And you know, not only that, but so how it works is in a court after the ruling is made, the court's um, popular decision and the dissenting opinion, meaning the opinion that lost, um, so to say, the opinion that won and the opinion that that loss is required to give their opinions, a written opinion at the end to be used in future court cases. So the ruling of this court where the wife won and the equal protection clause was utilized was actually cited in 56 other subsequent decisions. That is insane. <laughs> that, I'm sorry. I'm just at such a loss for words because 56 other court cases use this decision in deciding the ruling of their own cases. So now moving on from the Reed v. Reed case, in 1972, she was hired by Columbia Law School, where she taught for eight years from 1972 to 1980. And during this time where she was working as a professor from 1977 to 1978, she served as a fellow at the Center for Advanced Study in Behavioral Scientists at Stanford, California. And even more of the work she did during this time period of her life, she was a general counsel of the ACLU from 1973 to 1980 and on the National Board of Directors from 1974 to 1980. So just strictly during this time period from 1972 to 1980, she was working about four different jobs. She had four different positions at various um academic institutions, which is very impressive to be a woman in the 70s and have so many high position jobs. This just shows her intelligence, her grit, her perseverance, and that feminist attitude that she can do it just because she's a woman doesn't mean that she has to put any restrictions on herself. And this just really embodies her, that she didn't think less of herself, but she thought of herself less. So she believed in herself. She was confident. She knew she could do it, but she wasn't selfish. She didn't think of herself all the time. She thought about others and how she could be helping others. And that is why I believe she took a position as a lawyer and in the judicial system so that she can help others. In the midst of all this from 1972 to 1980, um, Ginsburg actually took on a case called Weisenberger versus Weisenfeld, which it was in 1975. And in this case, she advocated for men's rights. So a lot of people have this idea that she's a feminist icon, which, you know, she absolutely is. But she not only advocated for the underdog, she spoke up for men who were also being mistreated. 
So the the backstory in this case was that Stephen was a man who had lost his wife during childbirth. The child had survived, so Stephen was left as a widowed husband with a baby to take care of. And during this time, um, if a woman had lost her husband and she was left as a widowed mother, she would receive economic benefits. So she would receive some pay to help her take care of this baby. But Stephen was denied this simply because he was a man. So he was, in this case, he was not receiving the same benefits as a woman. So Ginsburg took on the case and she advocated for Stephen and she told the court that he should be able to have these benefits as well. Just because he's a man, it doesn't change anything because his wife was, before she passed, was actually the primary breadwinner of the family and she brought in the most income as a school teacher. So once she passed, Stephen was left, you know, he wasn't receiving the same income and now he has to take care of himself and this new baby and he's denied um, the benefits that his wife would have gotten if he had died. So Ginsburg took on the case and in a unanimous ruling, they favored the father. And again, it was a panel of all male judges. Very impressive again. So to have this panel of all male judges vote in favor of a man to have the same benefits as a woman is incredible. And it is not something that was often heard of, but Ginsburg made it happen. So after all of this, in 1980, President Jimmy Carter appointed Ginsburg to the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit. So this was the first time that Ginsburg was employed as a federal judge. It wasn't the Supreme Court quite yet. Um, we'll talk about that later. But right now, um, President Jimmy Carter had appointed her to the appeals for the District of Columbia. So that's a bit of a lower um, court constituent. And before we talk about her time in the Supreme Court, um, I wanna sort of highlight that even though, even before Ginsburg became a Supreme Court justice, she has stated that she faced extreme gender bias in the workplace and had trouble finding jobs because of a female job discrimination in the 60s and 70s. And even at one point when she was working and she became pregnant, she had to hide her pregnancy from her coworkers. And you know, I can't even imagine the stress that pregnancy puts on you and having to hide that from other people while still having to perform at your highest level in order to be even considered the same as your male counterparts. Um, she's just a superhero, but her salary, um, she has stated that her salary in these jobs were substantially lower than that of her male co-workers. Even though she was doing the same jobs, she would still get paid a lot lower. And from the 1990s until her death, she battled multiple cancers and went through numerous surgeries and chemotherapy. So during all this time um, that we're going to discuss her as a Supreme Court Justice, I want you to just keep in mind that throughout her time here, she is battling multiple cancers and she's undergoing various, like, as I said, various surgeries and chemotherapy, which are very rigorous and take a toll on your mental and physical health. But she is still part of the Supreme Court. She's still doing the job to her best of her ability, as you'll see um, as I talk about it right now. So let's get into that just kind of an overarching idea of her time in the highest court she advocated for racial and gender equality that was kind of her main thing and she was often involved in cases dealing with money and the economy so government benefits pay discrimination um things like being seen as fit 
which you can't see my air quotations, but I'm doing them, being seen as fit to take over a family member's estate, uh, she focused on economic gaps in order to create a society with no discrimination. Um, many banks would deny women with credit cards and say that they had to have a male co-signer in order to be, um, be able to receive them. And at the time, before Ruth had joined the Supreme Court, 43% of women were employed. That's less than half. So less than half of women in America had jobs and were working. And in 1971, um, it was stated that they made 40% less than their male co-workers. So doing the same job, they were paid 40% less. That is unbelievable. That would not go by in today's society but that's the kind of world that she had to live in that's the kind of world she had to work in with lower pay and lower considerations for job opportunities so one of the cases that she worked during her time in the supreme court was united states v virginia and during this it was she declared that it was unconstitutional for virginia military institute to prevent qualified women from being admitted be, simply because of their gender which you know we, I think most of us listening to this podcast can agree, yeah, um, it shouldn't be discriminated, that women shouldn't be discriminated against from entering into the military if they are qualified. But here, they were. <laughs> during this time period, during now the 1990s, she was admitted into the Supreme Court in uh, 1993, during this time, it was still okay to discriminate against women. So... During this case, she said that it was not okay. It was unconstitutional to prevent a woman from entering into the military force. And in another case, it was called Ledbetter v. Goodyear. A woman named Lily Ledbetter, who had been working at the company, a rubber and tire company, Goodyear, for 19 years. She was a 19-year veteran at the company. And Ledbetter had received an anonymous note that told her that she was making hundreds of less dollars monthly than the even the lowest paid man at the company. The lowest paid man at the company was still making hundreds of hundreds of more dollars than she was every month, even though she had been working at this company for nearly 20 years. So the court ruled in Goodyear's favor. The lower court, um, the local courts had ruled in the company's favor on, um, on a technicality. They said that it was fine for them to pay a lead better less, but Ginsburg took on the case because she knew that this was wrong. And she said that the cases contained some of the most obvious signs of pay discrimination that were being overlooked. And as a result of this, Barack Obama, who was the president, uh, signed the Lilly Ledbetter Act in 2009, which advocated for equal pay and required the equal pay of women and men in the workplace. So just by this one case that Ruth Bader Ginsburg fought for, it led to um, equal income for women and for men. And some of the other things that Ruth truly believed in and fought for in her time as a Supreme Court justice was the right for women to have control over their own bodies. She was pro-choice and she believed that females should have the power over reproducing and over their pregnancy, not a man. And she fought for same-sex marriage. She believed that the LGBTQ plus community deserved the same marital rights and the same marital status as um, heterosexuals. 
And in another case called Shelby County v. Holder, she worked to remove the Voting Act Rights Act of 1965, which in Section 5 of the Act, it required certain states and local governments to receive federal permission before altering their process of policies on voting, which, if you don't know, in the Tenth Amendment of the Constitution, uh, local voting is a reserved power of the states, but this section said that they needed federal approval. And in Section 4, it had an outdated a lot of outdated information that was used to create a formula that makes it necessary for certain jurisdictions to receive pre-clearance from the national government. So this was just overall a very unconstitutional and outdated system and a very outdated act. So she worked on gutting it. So some fun facts that I came across while I was researching Ruth Bader Ginsburg life is that during her time, she acquired the nickname Notorious RBG. I love that. (laughs) I've just got to say, I'm all for it. Um, She also has had various movies made about her life. Um, One is called On the Basis of Sex, and it's about her journey in becoming the incredible woman and historical figure that she is and always will be. Another one is called The RBG Movie, and it tells of her legal battles and time as a lawyer and Supreme Court justice. So if you want to learn more about her life and you have a little bit of free time, I definitely recommend watching those movies. They are very well made and do a really good job of telling her story. And now moving on to her death. She died from complications of pancreatic cancer at her home in Washington, D.C. at the age of 87. She passed away on September 18th of 2020. And her final wish is that her seat in the the Supreme Court not be filled until the next presidential election. This is very important because as of right now in the judiciary branch, there's an overwhelming amount of Republicans compared to Democrats and RBG was obviously a Democrat. So by taking her place, if a Republican takes her place, if Donald Trump appoints a Republican, which he most likely will because he is a Republican, this will be create a dangerous imbalance in the political system. So she wished that nobody fill her vacancy until the next election, but just hours after her death, same day, just hours after Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump were already discussing candidates to take her place. So it is unlikely that her wish will be fulfilled, but I hope it does because despite your political views, it you have to admit that it is dangerous to have an imbalance of parties in the judiciary system. The judiciary system, um, the Supreme Court is the one that decides these very important cases. So if there's only a Republican point of view, that is not okay. And that is not going to go well. So in closing, whether you agree with Ruth Bader Ginsburg political views or not, you can't deny the substantial and permanent impact that she has had on America and will continue to have. Because of Mrs. Ginsburg, as a female, I'm able to do everything from play a sport to inherit property. And the U.S. was such a different place before RBG had her say. And now we are so much more inclusive and open-minded, not only... um, in race and gender, but also in sexual orientation. During her time as a Supreme Court justice, same-sex marriage was legalized. And I have no doubt 
that I would be a completely different person if it wasn't for the work of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Fight for the things that you care about, but do it in a way that will lead others to join you. Ruth Bader Ginsburg